Uh, Please, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we were, uh, as we're working now our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at a passage last week in which Jesus uh, transitions from the discussion of Christians being called to be salt and light into a section now where Jesus is going to be going through some of the things that have been taught in the Old Testament. And in between those two sections, Jesus uh, transitions with what looks like a preface. Before I get into this discussion about uh, what the law has said, I, I want you to know, Jesus says in verses 17 to 20, that I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but that I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus is the one to whom the whole Old Testament pointed towards, meaning that in a variety of different ways, the whole Old Testament was anticipating the arrival of Jesus Christ. Things that were taught in the law, the institutions and the offices that were established in Israel's society, such as the sacrificial system, or the priesthood, or the kingship, everything was pointing forward to Jesus, so that when He arrived, God's kingdom agenda had finally reached the unfolding of the goal to which it all pointed. And that means that the things that Jesus is about to teach are not intended to be seen as demolishing what had been said in the Old Testament, but instead they are to be seen as the culmination of what was said in the Old Testament. The fulfillment. Everything Jesus teaches is in line with the trajectory that had already been set. But as we'll see today, what Jesus commands of the citizens of the kingdom requires a kind of obedience that was indicated by the law, we might say. But it is here clarified by the Lord. He demands a righteousness that exceeds the quality of righteousness possessed by the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus does not merely want external good behavior. That's what the scribes and Pharisees had done with the law. They were, in, in many ways, uh, had a pristine record of, of keeping uh, what the law had commanded, at least with regards to the outward uh, checklist. They were doing the things that it said, but Jesus doesn't merely want us to have good behavior. He wants us to have new hearts. So let's look at what Jesus, uh, how Jesus brings the law to its fulfillment in what he teaches about the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Read with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You have heard that this was said to those of old. So, who said that? Who said this? Well, as I just mentioned, the first half of the statement, you shall not murder, comes straight from the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, Exodus 20, verse 13. The second half, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, is probably derived from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, it reads like this. 
You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribe, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So not only does Israel have, or not only is Israel commanded not to murder, but they also had a judicial system that God had set up that was designed to enforce righteous judgment. Every city had to have uh, judges, and their job was to make sure that they performed righteous judgment for the people of Israel. So it's pretty straightforward. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Which meant in Israel, according to Numbers chapter 35, death penalty for murderers. Pretty straightforward. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, that is, they will lose their life. And that's what Israel had been taught in their law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. But I say to you, You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, Jesus is now going to teach something that it doesn't abolish the law. This is not an abolishment. But rather, it brings the law to its fulfillment. The law set a trajectory, and now Jesus is going to guide us to the bullseye, so to speak. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now notice that Jesus is diving beneath the skin to help us see that those who refrain from homicide have not necessarily refrained from that which lies at the root of homicide, anger. You can avoid killing somebody, literally, and still be guilty of that which causes you to murder somebody. Anger. And yes, you will face judgment and be put to death by a human court if you murder somebody the law says. But in the courtroom of God, Jesus says, it's our hearts and it's our words that are on trial. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord looks at the heart. And apparently God considers your words and the anger in your heart worthy of something far worse than the death penalty. Let's look at this. Two things are being judged here in verse 22. Anger Everyone who is angry with his brother. And then, we'll call it insults. Whoever insults his brother, or whoever says, you fool. Now, that, that's interesting. Whoever, whoever insults his brother, whoever says, you fool. The words that are used here in the Greek are fairly mild, everyday insults. It'd be like calling someone a dimwit or a moron. I mean, you could, say, you could say some things that are far worse than that. Those are, those are fairly, fairly mild. And shockingly, these things, the anger and the insults, prove us to be as good as a murderer 
in the courtroom of God because this is precisely what lies at the root of murder. Hatred for other people. So here's Jesus. He's getting at the motives. He's getting at our hearts. He's getting at our desires. And he's pointing out that even our words, even mild everyday words can reveal a murderous hatred that that we have stored up inside. Don't miss that point. Our words, our insults, can be windows into our hearts. Don't miss that. And don't miss this opportunity to learn something about how people are made in general. I mean, modern counseling has lots of theories about why people do what they do. Learn here from Jesus about why people do what they do. Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the, what do you think? The heart. And this defiles a person. Notice also that the severity of the judgment exceeds the severity of someone who has committed physical murder. The angry person is liable to judgment. God's judgment, apparently, since he's the only one who can truly know the heart. The one who insults is liable to the counsel. The one who says, you fool, is liable to the hell of fire. This word hell, ge'enna, is the same word that Jesus uses in other places in Matthew's Gospel to describe the place where the wicked are punished. Matthew 10.28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So this is a serious threat that Jesus is uh, saying that we face for our anger and our insults. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, he's making sure that our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's getting down to the heart. He's making sure that we understand that the kind of righteousness that Jesus desires for us requires us to not only refrain from literally shedding the blood of another human being, but to have a heart that is free from murder. That's what Jesus wants for us. God will not, oh, yeah, yeah, God will not tolerate hatred in our hearts. Here's what D.A. Carson says. Jesus insists that the sixth commandment points prophetically to the kingdom's condemnation of hate. Jesus does not want this in the heart of the people that belong to his kingdom. These people are supposed to be meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and merciful and peacemakers and pure in heart. He says, I do not want hatred lodged in the heart of my people. It's not fitting for the citizens of the kingdom. It cannot reside in them. It must be destroyed. Now there's something really important that I want to point out here because that it just lands so heavy on us. Jesus really wants this in our hearts. And that lands heavy because who in this room is not going, uh, okay, I guess hellbound? But I want to clarify something. The reason that Jesus is telling us 
about our anger problem is not for the purpose of merely showing us that we have a serious problem. Now, that's certainly true. We have a serious, serious problem. This verse helps us to see that, but that's not the main point of what Jesus is doing here. However, sometimes we will use this verse, these verses here in Matthew chapter 5, as though the purpose of them was to help us see how utterly screwed up we are. And we are. And these verses help. But sometimes we use them as though that's the the main purpose for what Jesus is doing here. Let me illustrate by uh, sharing with you uh, an example. There's There's an evangelism method that uses the Ten Commandments. Some of you have probably seen this or heard it. It uses the Ten Commandments to help people realize that they have a a serious sin problem. And so, as you help people realize that they have a serious sin problem, then that's a good opportunity to help them see that they have a need for a Savior. And then they, 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 in order to do that, they bring up the verses here in Matthew chapter 5 in order to help make the point that we are desperately sinful. So here's how the conversation unfolds. Um, you know, you've got two people, you've got two people talking, and uh, the evangelist says something like, "You know, why do you think God would let you into heaven?" And the answer is something like, "Well, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty good. I mean, I've never killed anybody." Really, you think you think you think you're a good person? Yes. And have you ever you have murdered anybody? Well, well, no. Of course, I've never murdered anybody. Okay. Have you ever been angry at anybody? Well, yeah. Of course, I've been angry at somebody. Did you know that Jesus says that anger is the same as murder? Whoa. Really. And then you kind of do the same thing with the lust and adultery thing, which we'll see next week. You ever committed adultery? No, I've never committed adultery. Well, did you ever lust? Well, yeah, of course. You, know, you get to the end of the conversation, you've got the person admitting that they're a murderous, adulterous thief uh, that's worthy of damnation. And then you bring, in, you bring in the gospel. It's a very effective way to help people see their need for a Savior. And, and all I want to do is point out that that can leave you with the impression that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling us about the problem of our our anger mainly for the purpose of presenting an impossible standard of righteousness, thereby proving us guilty of sin in order to cause us to flee to Him for salvation. In other words, sometimes we view this passage... Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus teaching on anger as though its purpose is to do to us the very same thing that the law of Moses did to us. Namely, it condemned us. Which is exactly what the law of Moses was intended to do in the big picture redemptive historical story. Romans 5.20 The law came in To increase the trespass. Or Romans 4.15. The law brings wrath. How? 
by giving us a standard of righteousness that proves us to be sinners. Or Galatians 3.23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned. Why? Because the law brought a standard of righteousness, put it before us, made it plain that we could not be perfect in God's sight, and it left us condemned. It brought wrath. It was for the purpose of imprisoning us. That's what the law was supposed to do. Prove us guilty. Leave us imprisoned. And then Galatians 3.24. So then the law was our guardian. Until Christ came. That's what Paul says. The law was our guardian until Christ came. And when Christ came, something changed. It doesn't say the law was our guardian until Christ came and then He was our guardian. When Christ comes, things change. He doesn't just repeat the law's work by condemning us again. John 1.17 The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here's my point. The main reason that Jesus is telling us about the danger of anger is not because He wants to do to us the, the same thing that the law did to us. Jesus is not on a mission in this passage to leave you feeling condemned and under the weight of an impossible standard. Now, sure, as soon as Jesus says this, it reveals that our hearts are not what they ought to be and that we are guilty of sin and that we need a Savior. Absolutely, that's the effect that it has. And if Jesus' teaching on anger this morning, this afternoon, is revealing the sinfulness of your heart today, then you can praise God for the gospel right now. Because the fact is, every one of us has room to grow in this, don't we? And it's no surprise to him that this teaching would help you to see the ways in which you need to grow in your anger problem. And he's made a way for you to pursue that growth by paying the debt for your sins so that you don't have to rot and wither under the weight of the condemnation that comes from knowing that your heart is not what it ought to be. But even though that's the effect that this teaching might have on us, even though this passage might drive you to the cross to seek forgiveness, that's not the main reason Jesus is telling us about what the heart ought to look like. It's not the note that Jesus lands on. The main point is that Jesus does not merely want to forgive you, but He wants to change you. Jesus wants to change you. That's the main point. Jesus does not intend for the hearts of His people to be filled with hateful anger that boils into insults. Those things are worthy of eternal judgment. And therefore, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and you see these things in your life, then number one, confess them and receive the forgiveness of Christ. And number two, you must battle to put it to death. And that's the point. These things are not fitting for the people of God and we have to take action against them. That's the point. God wants you to go to war with hatred in your heart. That's the point. Jesus does not merely want us to realize that we're giving a subpar performance true as that may be. 
He does not merely want us to go to the cross for forgiveness, true as that may be. He wants to change you. He wants to deeply change you so that these things are increasingly disappearing from the heart. And in order for that to take place, we need to go to war with what's in the heart. That's the point. And he's going to show us how to do it with two practical examples. So let's take a look at those. Jesus can provide two scenarios that illustrate how we can go to war with the anger in our hearts so that we become increasingly transformed people. And both of these scenarios are going to point out that uh, change requires humility. So let's read. Example number one is in verses 23 to 24. And here's the point. I'll just say it up front. The, The point is, repent of the anger that has injured your brother. Repent of the anger that has injured your brother. Verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. It's kind of a strange change that Jesus makes here. He say, first, the first thing he does in the first couple of verses is he says, there's a problem, a serious problem, when there's anger in your heart. Therefore, if your brother has something against you, go to him. How does the logic work there? You just warned me that I have a problem with anger in my heart, or if I have a problem with anger in my heart, I'm in serious trouble. And then you said, if your brother has something against you, how does, it seems like you're wanting me to work on my heart, but then you tell me to go work on my brother's heart? I don't get it. The only way that it makes sense to me is if Jesus is saying, your anger has caused you to do something to your brother. And here you are at the temple offering your sacrifice and you remember that your brother has a legitimate case against you because of something that you did, some outburst of anger that you committed against him. You're remembering that. You guys aren't reconciled. So what are you going to do? Jesus says, if you've done something in anger that has offended your brother and you remember that he has something against you, go make it right. Stop what you're doing, even if you're serving God, and repent. Go, be reconciled to your brother. Verse 24. Notice that the same strategy occurs in the next example. Here's example number two. Repent of the anger that has injured your accuser. Now, in the first first example, it seems that Jesus is talking about hurting a brother, another Christian. In this example, it's just an accuser. Somebody that you've hurt who now has a legitimate accusation against you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now in this situation, we have, in our anger, done something to somebody who now has this legitimate accusation against us. 
And the imagery that Jesus uses is the courtroom scene. And as we saw a moment ago, if you've got to face the judge with regards to this issue, it's not going to prove to be good for you. It's going to be very bad. So if you've done something in your anger to give somebody a legitimate accusation against you, what can you do to avoid being judged and imprisoned for your anger? Go make it right. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. In both of the situations, Jesus tells us that we must urgently seek reconciliation for the things that we've done to provoke others. Postpone your acts of service to God if you must. Have a talk on the way to the courthouse if you must. Make it right and do it now. There's an urgency. Now, I actually find that these instructions are relieving after reading verses 21 and 22. Because you read verses 21 and 22, and you could mistakenly conclude that you're basically on your way to hell because you've got all this anger in your heart. But that's not how Jesus leaves it. Jesus says there's, there's something you can do to work on your heart. There's something you can do to work on your heart to put these things to death. Like I said earlier, the whole purpose of the passage is to help us change so that our hearts don't remain in this murderous state with these murderous trends. And through these two examples, Jesus is showing us that the way that we battle against the presence of anger in our lives is to humble ourselves and to agree with God that this is not fitting behavior. This is not fitting state of the heart for a citizen of the kingdom of God. So we must humble ourselves before God and we must humble ourselves further to those whom we have offended in our anger and we must repent. We have to own that anger. We have to confess that anger. We ask forgiveness for that anger. And we try to repair what has been broken by that anger. And when you go repent of anger, it's different than just saying, you've heard me say this before, saying sorry about it is not the same thing as owning your sin. What I did to you was uncalled for. It was not even consistent with the life that my Savior Jesus calls me to live. I should not have done that. Will you please forgive me? That's very different than, hey, you know that time when I uh, you know, threatened your life? Sorry, sorry about that. It's not owning it. It's very hard to do. It's extremely humbling. But you know what it does to the heart? God changes hearts through people who repent. God changes hearts as people repent. He does amazing things in people's hearts when they confess their sins to one another. I found that confession of sin in my life has opened up channels of communion with God that were clogged, that were dammed up for decades. I'm not kidding. Decades. Confession was a cleansing. It changed me. God changed me through confession of sin. 
And I don't have any, any doubt at all, really, that there are people in here this afternoon whose hearts are in trouble, whose hearts are hard and crusty and dammed up and clogged because of outbursts of anger that have never been repented of. Where you've damaged somebody. You have a brother who has, uh, who, who has something against you. You have an accuser who has a legitimate uh, accusation because of what you did in your anger. There are people in your life who've been on the receiving end of it. Perhaps Christians, perhaps they aren't Christians, perhaps just a co-worker or a boss or former roommate, I don't know. And Jesus wants to change your heart. And the way he's doing it, the way he's going to do it, right now, the way he wants to do it, is he's calling you to go make it right. That's how he wants to heal you. This is a call from Jesus through his word. If you're remembering, it's because he wants you to go make it right. And he wants to change your heart. He doesn't want those. He doesn't want those murderous thoughts. He doesn't want that trend to keep happening. He wants to change you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to make you pure in heart. Now that doesn't mean that others will always be open to our attempts to reconcile. But God's asking you not to change their hearts, but to just do your part to try to make it right. So they may reject you. It's happened to me before. They, you know, will you please forgive me? No! (laughs) Your job is not to make them forgive you. Your job is to own your sin. Own it. Before God and before them. And then it's in their court. That's, That's between them and the Lord. Paul helps us understand our responsibility in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, whatever you can do, you have a responsibility to make sure that your anger, if your anger has impacted another person, that you do what you can to reconcile with that person. Your kids count. Your kids count. I don't know how many times I have had to repent to my kids or angry outbursts, but it's murderous. And God wants to change me. Okay, so we're going to take the Lord's Supper here. And as we do that, um, there's an application from this passage that I want to talk about. Well, I want to clarify something, I guess. I've heard pastors say, that you uh, should make things right before you take the Lord's Supper. Meaning, um, like I just preached this whole passage on anger, and now um, you maybe realize you need to get some things right. And then this scripture says that if you remember that, and you're offering a sacrifice at the temple, just leave it there. Go make it right. So I've even heard a pastor say, hey, before you take the Lord's Supper, you should make, you should make things right. Uh, I've got my cell phone here. You can go make a phone call right now. Um, 
And I love the heart behind that. I don't, I don't think the Lord's Supper and offering the sacrifice are the same thing. So I'm going to share with you why I actually think you should take the Lord's Supper before you reconcile. Or at least maybe what I, this is probably a safer way to say it. I'm going to tell you why I think that you don't need to reconcile before you take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' example, uh, the person is bringing a sacrifice in service to God. And the, the image is one of honoring God with your service to Him. And in the Lord's Supper, the difference is that you're not bringing anything to God. This is not about you coming to offer service to God. This is about God offering you the fruits of His sacrifice for you. And there's a big difference. If you, were, if you were leading a small group and you were not right with your wife, and you said, well, I've got to serve the Lord, though. I've got this job to do. But you just had this hateful, terrible fight with her beforehand. Don't do small group. Get it right with your wife. Lord doesn't need your service. But this is different. This is all about what Jesus has done for people with anger problems. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the Gospel. This is the body of the Lord broken for you because of your anger issues. This is the blood of the New Covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins for you because of your issues with anger. So far as I can tell, the only reason you should abstain from taking the Lord's Supper today is if, well, one, if you are not trusting in Christ, and two, with regards to the anger issues, if you have uh, no intentions of repenting and you refuse to confess the sin of your anger to God. If, on the other hand, you are truly convicted, you recognize that you have sinned, you desire to make it right, you're willing to confess to God, you're willing to walk in obedience to God, you're willing to submit yourself under God, you're willing to receive the benefits of the Gospel, then my encouragement is that you confess your sins to God, recognize that you're in need of His new covenant mercies, receive the promises of the Gospel that are offered to you by Jesus, who is ready to give Himself to you, which is symbolized here in the giving of the Lord's Supper. Trust in the grace of God. Trust in Christ. Receive His forgiveness. And in the strength that God provides you through the Gospel by reminding you that you are not justified on the basis of your ability to have a pure heart that's free from anger. As you feel the strength that God gives to you as He fills you with His grace and reminds you once again, this has never been about what you can do for God. This has always been about what Christ has done for you. As you remember that, as you receive that cleansing, then go from here, go from this table and be reconciled to your brother, to your adversary. Amen?